You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Hey, Shortwavers! Regina Barber here, and today we're welcoming back reporter and Shortwaver Anil Oza. Hey, Anil. Hi, Gina. Okay, what do you got for us today? Today, I have a story about some high-tech birds. Oh, Anil, you and your critters. I love critters, but it's not just me. So many people love birds. True. According to the government, somewhere around one in five people in the U.S. are bird watchers. But a couple of years ago, birds kind of got a bad name and were getting attention for all the wrong reasons. Wait, what was that? This is from what's called a bird truther protest. Oh, no. It comes from the satirical conspiracy theory that has a pretty provocative claim that birds aren't real. It was created as a commentary on how misinformation spreads nowadays, but I know someone that can explain it a lot better than I can. I've been running a fake conspiracy theory called Birds Aren't Real uh, for the past five years or so, which posits that the U.S. government killed over 12 billion birds in the American skies and replaced them with surveillance drone replicas that watch you and me every day. Peter McIndoo's fake conspiracy theory caught a lot of people's attention, including news outlets like CBS and Fox, because of how absurd it was, which was kind of the whole point. More than a million people have become followers of a conspiracy theory that birds aren't real. A campaign called Birds Are Not Real brings its efforts to the Mid-South. We believe the government replaced birds with deep state agents who surveil the American citizenry. Is it crazy? But having a drone that looks and functions like a bird doesn't quite sound as out there now. I came up with that concept because I thought, you know, that's one of the most outlandish things, but is sort of believable. But the times have sort of grown around the idea. Like, as the years pass, Birds Aren't Real fits in more and more with things that are actually happening. And one of the people that is making that happen is Mustafa Hassanalian. He's an engineer at New Mexico Tech. So I have been doing research on drones uh, in about uh, 15 years. And uh, at the beginning, I was doing research on fixed-winged micro-aerial vehicles. Mustafa works in a field called biomimetics or biomimicry. Okay, so like seeing how you can take ideas from nature and use them in your own technology. Yes, and that's not super uncommon. I mean, a lot of inspiration for technology comes from the natural world. Some of the earliest planes and subs were made because we were jealous of birds and fish. I mean, I am totally jealous of birds and fish. Right, you would be. But anyway, <laughs> at a certain point, Mustafa hit a wall in his work mimicking birds in drone technology. I had uh, plenty of uncertainties during my design. So, for example, how I can find out the optimum flapping frequency for my flapping wing or what is the best wing shape for my flapping wing drone. And uh, that was the time that I got to the area of biomimicry. And as he was exploring all of these questions about flight, it took him to one conclusion. Artificial material cannot replicate the actual flight of the birds. He just couldn't get it as good as nature had. And so he stopped trying to copy it himself. Maybe instead of artificial material, I can use the feathers or the wings of the actual birds that they naturally did and they are taxidermied and use them for my flapping wings. Wow. Okay. So they use real birds to make drones. So what made them want to do this? Yeah. First, I want to clarify that no birds were harmed in the making of these drones. They were already dead. But Mustafa was hoping that they can tell us a little more about how the bodies of these birds actually work. And these drones could be used for surveillance, just not on humans. 
the drones that are being used for wildlife monitoring. So for example, you want to study the uh, herd of the elephants in Africa. So if you use those quadcopters or hexacopters with the camera mounted to observe nature, we know that those type of drones, they are so noisy. They create a lot of noise. And in most of the times, animals will be scared and scattered. So today on the show, birds are real. But some drones of the future may look more like birds than quadcopters. Plus, three ways birds are teaching scientists to make better drones. I'm Anil Oza. And I'm Regina Barber. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Comcast Business. Is it possible to get business internet you can really rely on? It is with Comcast Business. Keeping businesses of all kinds up and running with a network powered by 99.9% reliability. Plus, advanced security to help outsmart threats to your data. And 24-7 customer support to help anytime. With Comcast Business, reliable business internet isn't just possible, it's happening. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 solve food for work. From ordering online for meetings and team lunches to managing food spend for your whole organization, Easy Cater can help you simplify your corporate catering needs. Over 100,000 restaurants nationwide, plus budgeting tools and payment by invoice. Learn more at easycater.com. Okay, so Anil, we're going to talk about drones that are taking inspiration from birds. Big first question, why not just model all our robotics after nature? Clearly, Mustafa's pretty sold on this idea of bio-inspiration. His lab is chock full of a bunch of different robots that are based on a ton of different things. Birds, fish, spiders, roly-polies. He's doing this because nature has been tinkering for so much longer than we have. So we know that uh, during the millions of years of evolution, nature has developed like processes, objects, materials, and functions to increase its efficiency. So whatever we see in our daily life or basically in in the current life is uh, a treasure of millions of years. But it isn't perfect. And for Mustafa, it all comes down to scale. For example, nature hasn't quite tried to make something the size of an airplane that can fly and hold a ton of weight. (laughs) But it's pretty good at getting flight on a smaller scale. So, for example, I can develop insect-sized flapping wing drone. It would be more efficient to develop a drone using flapping motion in the size of insects rather than having a wing or propellers. So looking at birds may not have us rethinking how we make our planes, but they could reshape smaller drones. Okay, so that makes sense. But you mentioned three main lessons birds are teaching engineers. Does one have to do with wings? Yes, it does. I'm so good at this. Yes, you get a gold (laughs) star for today. Yay! So lesson one is all about these wings and how efficient they are. So when you're flying, you're trying to generate force in two directions. Up, which is called lift, and forward, which is called thrust. Yes, this is bringing me back to physics. I'm feeling comfortable now. Yeah, it's not my favorite subject, though. Well, it's because I wasn't your professor. That is so true. But regardless of my personal feelings, in traditional drones, you have different parts of the vehicle doing these two different things, lifting the plane up and moving it forward. But in birds, they're doing both at the same time. When they flap their wings, they're getting lift and thrust at the same time. And it can really pay off. So 
how they save energy, what type of kinematics they are applying in order to be more efficient for this long uh, like migration. That's actually fascinating. Like, what about their wings make them such efficient flyers? So scientists have a couple of ideas, but they don't get the full picture quite yet. And it probably has to do with everything, from the shape of their wings to the way that they flap these wings and how they interact with the environment around them. And digging into the details about their wings brings me to lesson number two. And for that one, I want you to think about color. Okay, why are we talking about fabulously colored Birds like flamingos or peacocks or toucans or something? No, less fun and fabulous than that, sadly. We're thinking black and white for this one. And I think a good example of this is an albatross. We actually covered them on the pod before, right? They're these huge birds that fly long distances over the ocean. Yeah, they've got these mostly white and black bodies, so they look kind of like a lot of seabirds, but that's kind of the key here. The common things between them is their coloration. They have black color at the top side of their wing, and they have white color at the bottom side. Mm -hmm. Right. And now coming from a biology background, I'm used to thinking about colors on birds being for camouflage or mating or things like that. That's not what's going on here. The black color is absorbing more sun radiation, so it gets heat. So it changed the flow patterns around the wing. So the top surface of the wing is going to be hotter than the bottom side. And those birds, they can gain extra lift and in the same time reduce their drag. This is like really fascinating to me because I never thought about it in color, but it makes complete sense, right? Because when you have hot air, you have lower pressure and cold air has this like higher pressure. And if you have higher pressure underneath the wing, you're going to create that lift. Right. And that's part of what helps these albatrosses so that they can migrate super long distances without even flapping their wings that much. They do this thing called dynamic soaring, which helps them fly with so much less energy. Ooh, so cool. Okay, so let's move on to the final lesson. So it has to do with what these colors are on. The feathers, bones, and also the fact that birds can very easily go with the flow. So, when we're thinking about planes, David Lentink, a professor of biomimetics at the University of Groningen, says, We need to know the position of every part at every moment and make sure it does exactly what we want it to do. And, you know, that means many motors, many sensors, and a complicated control loop, you know, over many degrees of freedom, so many moving parts. And that's just not possible. When you're flying, there's wind coming from a bunch of different directions. There's other objects, clouds, and even different temperatures. And birds are definitely very smart, but they're not consistently calibrating themselves to all of these different things and angling themselves in their bodies. That's not how birds do it. Specifically, their feathers can help them be really flexible. There's like an elastic ligament between all the feathers that just distributed automatically. If you pull on one feather, like the ones next to it, move a little bit with it. So that means that when a bird stretches its wing, all the feathers are automatically redistributed. Yeah, I can see why that would help. You don't have to like coordinate each feather or muscle to move in a certain way. But do we know how the bird's bodies do this? Not entirely. And part of it is that our technology isn't good enough to capture all of this. While we've been mostly talking about these larger migratory birds, David basically trains hummingbirds to voluntarily fly in a wind tunnel in his lab. We, for example, can fit them out with uh, tiny markers, like a Hollywood motion capture studio. Cool. And so he's taking snapshots really quickly to see what's going on, down to the thousandth of a second. We can 3D scan an entire bird at a thousand frames or 3,000 frames per second. And that really doesn't exist elsewhere. So that's how we're able to actually see how they change the shape of their wing. And I talked to Xin Yan Deng, an engineer at Purdue University, who's doing something similar with hummingbird drones. 
built with really flexible materials. And she told me that even when they put it through this really complicated obstacle course and it's bumping around, or even after slicing off a part of its wing, it still worked. I feel like one of the biggest advantages of a bio-inspired robot, uh, the flying one especially, is the resilience of the vehicle. Okay, and so to recap, the three lessons that these bird researchers have learned are, like, one, their wings are efficient and generate force in multiple directions, unlike drones, which currently use different components for each force. And two, birds have evolved to be colored in a way that maximizes the air pressure around them to have, like, better lift. Right. And three... Birds have really flexible bones and feathers to make them more aerodynamic. So where does all this, like these three lessons, leave researchers? Well, with more research to do, they're still trying to close that gap between the limits of current drones and the perfection of bird flight. But if you ask Xinyan, this field has really progressed from where it was even just a few years ago. And so when I talked to her for the story and about the idea that some birds might not be real, she initially laughed it off. But then she told me this. Maybe down in the future, not so uh, distant future, you will not be able to distinguish the real and the artificial birds. While these convincing bird drones could become a reality, it's not as grim as Peter's conspiracy theory could be. Technology is like a double sword, but I think I, I really like the idea of uh, companion birds and like toy for kids and for good, you know, put it to good use. And nature is such a wonderful gift to human, and we should respect it and uh, build man-made vehicles to, to do good things. But in the meantime, current drones can help us spy on other animals, including birds, and help us learn more about them while making better bird-like drones in the future. Plus, this technology can help us understand the physics of flight so much better. Thank you for bringing us this story. It's always my pleasure, Gina. And they'll say it with me. Birds are real. I don't know if I can bring myself to do that. Do it. All right. Birds are real. Before we head out, the end of the year is coming up, and we're reflecting a bit here at Shortwave. We've loved bringing you stories and interviews about everything from AI to astronauts in space to rats to the James Webb Space Telescope. And we're excited about everything we're going to get into in 2024 hopefully with your financial support. This is where we want to say a big thank you to our Shortwave Plus supporters and anyone listening who already donates to public media. Your support ensures that everyone has free access to reliable news and podcasts, including those who can't afford to give this season. And to anyone out there who isn't a supporter yet, right now is a time to get behind the NPR network, especially with newsrooms gearing up for an important election year. Supporting public media now takes just a few minutes and makes a real difference in what's possible moving forward. So join NPR Plus or make a tax-deductible donation now at donate.npr.org shortwave. This episode was produced by Rachel Carlson and edited by our showrunner, Rebecca Ramirez. Britt Hansen checked the facts, and Stacey Abbott was our audio engineer. I'm Anil Oza. And I'm Regina Barber. Thank you for listening to Shortwave from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. E-commerce logistics making you question why you started your business? Time to outsource fulfillment to the experts over at ShipBob. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob. 
At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.